Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Letters to America, the show that asks, what if we took one of St. Paul's letters and changed the name on it as if it was sent to America? My name is Ray Gerard. And today, our show is entitled, America, More Divided Than Ever, Unbecoming Itself. Our letter that we're going to look at today from St. Paul is one that was originally written to the Galatians, and it is found in chapter 5. It says, For you were called for freedom, brothers, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, Serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. Now, you might ask, you know, how this fits into our program title. Our program title talks about America unbecoming itself. Now, the passage speaks of love, and many people would say that America has hardly been or has not been a model of universal love or some perfect model of love, but St. Paul's letter also speaks of freedom, and we're going to ask and examine whether the use of freedom to attack each other is against who we are as a people within the intended audience of St. Paul. Now, I think it can easily be said that America is, in fact, more divided than ever. Um, we have multiple, multiple examples of this in many, in many places today. For example, about a year ago in Middlebury, Vermont, at Middlebury College, a professor invited another guest uh, professor to come and speak. The professor who was from Middlebury College was an avowed Democrat and liberal the guest that she invited was a avowed conservative and Republican. The uh, event drew a lot of um, a lot of objections. Students showed up; they were not happy. They shouted uh, this, both of the speakers down, and they actually physically attacked both of the speakers, including their own professor. Um, the host professor sustained, I believe, uh, a broken collarbone and a concussion. And afterwards, she wrote a, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times. And in it, she talked about what was disturbing to her. And what was disturbing to her was what she saw on the faces of those who were doing the attacking. She said that students who supported the event would look her in the eye. But she said that students who were objecting to the event being held wouldn't do that. They would not look her in the eye as they were disrupting the event and actually then attacking them, they would not do that. And she wrote that the reason that she she believed they would not do that is because if they did, they would have had to see her as a person, as another human being, and that they couldn't do. And that's in in large part what we're experiencing a lot in our our country today. We're attacking other people because they belong to certain parties, they have certain beliefs, 
rather than seeing other people as people, respecting them for who they are, respecting their opinions and their rights to have it, but nevertheless disagreeing with them. But over and over again, we see that's not what's occurring here today. What's occurring is just, uh, you know, violence and people shouting other people down. We have senators, high-ranking senators being accosted in restaurants. We have members of the White House being accosted in restaurants. We have a situation that is well known where members of Congress on a baseball field were actually shot. Um, we have another incident that happened recently this election cycle in Minnesota where there was a candidate running for Congress and a gentleman came up to him. And at first he seemed very genial and they were having a decent conversation. And then at one point the candidate turned to talk to another person who was there at the event. And the gentleman who he had been speaking to suddenly struck him from his blind side, knocking him to the ground. And when his head hit the ground, he suffered a concussion and blacked out. The attacker then jumped on top of him and wanted to continue to pummel this man. But others jumped in and, and stopped him from doing it. But still, the issue, and the, the issue remains, what prompts people to go to such extents? What, what makes them so upset with other people that they find there's nothing else they can do except resort to such, to such violence. We have um, been living for quite some time in this country with a culture that has told us that we must disrespect people with whom we disagree. There was a, uh, a man by the name of Saul Alinsky who wrote a book called Reveille for Radicals in 1946. Then he produced another book in 1971 called Rules for Radicals. That book has been regarded and proclaimed by many people on both sides of the political spectrum as a sort of Bible for social activists or for people who just want to simply uh, engage with some success in the current state of political uh, gamesmanship, if, uh, to use that term, um, as it is engaged in today. And... Uh, Mr. Alinsky saw the world as one that was characterized uh, in great measure by conflict. Everything revolves around conflict. And if you thought that it didn't, you were simply naive. And love itself was something that, well, we delude ourselves into, but in large part, especially at least in the social context, it really didn't play a part. Um, he took a realistic view of things, uh, proclaiming that he wanted to see the world as it is, and that people might say things that sounded loving or kind or noble or virtuous, but then in effect, they acted out of motivations that were always based on their own individual desires and needs, whether they were in fact an individual person or an individual organization or a party, and that that's really how the world operated. And he, um, he then said that in order to engage in that kind of a world, you simply had to engage in tactics um, that were effective in that particular world. He thought ridicule was the most potent weapon that someone could have. You would ridicule your opponent. You would attack them personally. And that if you were going to do that, uh, you could even 
tell things about another person that were not true. You could, in fact, lie about another person. And um, to illustrate that point, in uh, in his book, um, uh, I believe it was Rules for Radicals, he wrote that one time he uh, went uh, to a particular community. He would, uh, when he became popular and, and became a national figure, he would travel from different around to different places in the country and um, coach and, and, and instruct local uh, organizations on how they should uh, try to promote their particular interests and, and, and efforts. And he went, I believe it was in California, he went to a particular community. And uh, at one point they were discussing ridiculing uh, a figure on the other side. I don't know if it was the head of a corporation or mayor of a community, but there was some particular figure who was, uh, who was you know, influential on the other side, and they were uh, organizing a campaign to ridicule him. And some of the people around Alinsky at that time expressed discomfort with what was uh, being proposed. And the reason they, they felt that was they said, well, but we do know this man. And what we're saying is not true. He's a good person. He's a family man. He goes to the church. Uh, whatever you know, they were saying at that particular time about this, he said, you know, he's a good person. And Alinsky wrote that that was nothing short of political idiocy. And the reason why he said that was the only, the real important thing was winning. And if that is the goal, if you believe, as he did, that what you're, when you're trying to serve a noble public, a noble social purpose for a group in society, maybe some oppressed group, um, economically uh, disadvantaged, uh, ethnically or racially disadvantaged, whatever the uh, group uh, group was, if they were being oppressed, then of course it was good and right to uh, organize these people to help them secure some better. Uh, modes of life, whether it's in housing or jobs or medical care, whatever it might be, or education, whatever it might be, and that those were noble purposes. And that if in a cruel world, what was necessary was to be able to to win some uh, some particular you know power struggle on their behalf, then of course lying or these types of other activities were okay. Well, that was. Uh, that was his philosophy in the 50s and 60s. He wrote a book, in, like I said, his last book in 1971, and then he died shortly thereafter. But nevertheless, his uh, ideas have been used by uh, players on the political stages in this country ever since. And over the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen these play out to the point where it is not so much what a a person on the other side might say, it's who they are, and can we attack them? And um, people could argue, uh, people you know, argue the, the recent uh, nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court of a man by the name of Brett Kavanaugh, people can argue both sides of that equation. Uh, but it, there's no doubt that people wanted to attack him, um, and some of the people who are attacking him have admitted now that they were lying. So 
the important thing was to defeat his nomination. And if you had to lie, it was okay. But what you lied about, or what you attacked him on, was not so much his ideas as a judge on certain things, but who he was as a person, and whether or not he was, um, you know, some type of a, a, a sexual predator or oppressor of women. That is where the engagement uh, was taken these days. And it's, it's not just him, but it's on with many other people over and over again. This is what we see play out. And now it's more than just wars of words nowadays. We're seeing it progress to the point where we have shootings on baseball fields. We have people being attacked, you know, physically at a, at a political event uh, or just speaking engagements. And so the question now is, can St. Paul... Uh, speak to us about this. Um, and the question is obviously yes, because his, the passage that we quoted earlier spoke of freedom and how we use that freedom. And uh, when we began the show, I said this was going to be a show about America unbecoming itself. So we also have to ask, well, what is America? We know that America today is more divided than ever, but is that different from who we are as a people, who we have been and, you know, who we might claim to be in terms of our national identity. So what is our national identity? Well, if you were to go to New York City today and go visit the Statue of Liberty, and you walked inside the base of the Statue of Liberty, you would see a plaque. And on that plaque uh, is a poem that was written at the time people were trying to raise funds to... Um, well, they were raising funds for a base on which the Statue of Liberty would be placed. And this particular poem says, uh, the poet was a woman by the name of Emma Lazarus, by the way, and she titled it The New Colossus. And she said, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And so the Statue of Liberty, by its own name, proclaims liberty as its purpose. The poem that is inscribed on this plaque inside it talks also very eloquently about people yearning to breathe free. And that's not the only example that we have of what our country stands for. You look to the Declaration of Independence, our founding document, and the, the title itself contains the word independence. And it talks about, as everyone I think is quite familiar, the fact that the founders held true, certain truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, uh, endowed by their creator with certain rights, and that among these are liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So, uh, and then, of course, you can look to the Bill of Rights, which, you know, provided the legal basis for our country ever since our founding. 
and inscribed in the First Amendment, the very First Amendment, uh, are protections for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom. It is unquestionably what um, is a central, central tenet of who this, of who we are as a country, and what we stand for. And yet, it's freedom that allows people to attack each other. And so the question is, is this, um, is this somehow against who we are as a nation? And many people would say, well, of course not. Freedom means the freedom to do good or ill. There is no, I mean, freedom is, is, is simply the ability to do whatever. And that any time you constrain freedom, that you are then uh, providing or, or creating a situation in which there is something less than freedom. And so when people want to attack others for political ends, uh, they have the right to do so. And why not? And so we are in the midst of this situation where America is becoming more divided than ever. And, can, and so now the question again is, can, can, can St. Paul speak to us about this? So if we turn back to that passage that we read at the beginning of the program, we find him saying, for you were called for freedom, brothers. Called for freedom. It's as if he were saying, you were born for freedom. That that's who you are. And of course, as we've just been saying, that's who we are as a country. And St. Paul was talking to the people who were listening to him, and he was saying, you were born for freedom. You were called for freedom. Called for what? Called to be followers of Christ. Called to be born again. Called for a new life. Called to put on a new self. It's, and that calling is, is everything. It's not a, that was not a small calling to Paul. Uh, it's not something that we can, it was a call to think of in anything less than the most important terms. The calling to be a follower of Christ was a calling then to um, follow him and achieve, achieve through him eternal life. It was a call calling to be uh, connected with God himself. Any person's life, if it didn't answer such a call and if it didn't lead you somehow to eternal life in God, would be, would be what? I mean, it, it, it would be less than what we were all created to do. So for Paul, this calling is a calling not, I mean, it's a calling to your life, life in Christ, life beyond this earthy life. life. It's a calling for life itself. He says you're called for freedom. What he means is your freedom is everything. The, uh, the Catholic Church has long protected and defended uh, its doctrine of free will. Why does it do that? And why is it important? The doctrine of well, the Catholic Church has also held that the human person has an innate dignity. And why is that? We have a dignity because we are created by God. Every living thing, of course, is created by God. 
And so every living thing has a certain dignity. What makes humans any different? Well, that's where free will comes in. And that's why the church believes free will is so important. While your pet dog or uh, a whale swimming out in the ocean are both creatures of God, they're both living beings that uh, have good in them. I mean, God does not create anything that's good. But yet, they don't have the free will that we do. The free will to do good or ill, knowing that what we do is good or ill. That is a difference. And so, the freedom that we have, if we are, if we are born for freedom, called for freedom, it's a calling for freedom to do good or ill. It's not just a calling to do anything. If it was a calling to do anything, if our freedom meant nothing more than we could do whatever we liked, anytime we wanted, and nothing else mattered, um, that would not be satisfying. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people in society today are trying every sort of pleasure of one sort or another, and it seems as if they're never satisfied. And this seems to be so totally in line with the human condition. Because St. Augustine wrote over 1,500 years ago that our hearts are restless until they rest in the Lord. There's nothing different about what's going on today than what St. Augustine himself experienced in his own life. You can search for pleasures and you can run from one of them to the next and yet you're never satisfied. You can have all the freedom to do whatever you want and yet you may end up not being satisfied. Let's still go back to Paul's letter again and see the next point that he talks about. He says, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, the whole law. Of course, Paul is speaking about Jewish law. And for the Jewish community uh, in which Paul grew up, the law was everything. It was your key to salvation. It was your key to God. If you obeyed the law, and there were many, many, many of them that you had to obey, that was what you needed to do uh, in order to secure favor with God um, and that was, that was your entire purpose for life. And now he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. And, of course, that's significant because, as I said, there are many, many laws, many prescriptions about what you had to do. And here he's saying he can boil all of them, uh, all of them, I think there are hundreds, all of them down to one statement, love your neighbor as yourself love love is the key the serve one another through love why is this so important as saint john says god is love and if we are in fact created by god and created in god's image as the bible tells us and if god is love then we must have some love inside of us some love at our center. Uh, 
some love in our soul. And is that not something we can agree on to to a large extent? Have there not been, for centuries, poems written about love? Poems that express the deepest yearnings, the most intense feelings. Has that not been some crying out from the souls of poets for centuries? Even today, any, anyone out there who has, been a, has, a, has had a child born, do they not feel some love for that child? Or if they treat a child inappropriately or, or angrily, do they not perhaps, even if they don't admit it to themselves, feel some discomfort, some unease, some inner knowing that this is not right? Do young children, as soon as they're born, um, feel love for their parents? I mean, love is, um, love is love is central, is it not, to the human condition, just as freedom is central to the human condition. If I mentioned you know, the situation of a parent doing ill towards a child, what if a person does ill towards another person who they don't even know? just a perfect stranger. More often than not, do people not feel some unease, some sense of guilt, as much as they may try to deny it? Is there not something inside that says, this should not be? Or, if we look at the reverse, when you do an act of kindness for another person, is there not some feeling of, um, of satisfaction, uh, you know, some feeling of, of comfort instead, instead of discomfort? With doing that, um, you can certainly point to cases where people act differently and they give no indication of this. But would not this be true for most people? Um, so, if we are in fact created by God and God is love, and we have some core feelings of love. Um, because we're in fact created by God, then in fact um, our freedom would be in keeping or consistent with who we are as people if it is exercised for love. And that in fact is what Paul is exhorting us to do. Exercise your love for the benefit of others. Regard your neighbor as um, I love your neighbor as much as yourself. You know, I said we could do, uh, we could exercise freedom for good or ill. You can also exercise freedom for yourself or for others. You can exercise freedom with yourself first in mind, where you're thinking of your wants, your desires. That's how you exercise your freedom. Or you could exercise your freedom for the benefit of others with other people in mind, with their needs, what is good for them, what, is the, what are their desires, putting your own second. Is there an alternative? To ex- you can exercise your freedom for the benefit of yourself or for others. Is there a third alternative? To exercise it for no one? Doesn't seem sensible. So if our choice is down to those two, for yourself or for others, again, free- freedom then has to be exercised 
towards a certain end, um, for a certain purpose. There is no such thing as freedom for freedom's sake, freedom for itself, freedom that has no end in mind. So whether it's for good or for ill, or for you or for others, there's a there's a, an end point. There's some kind of a goal to the use of freedom. Freedom cannot be simply by itself. And so the common concept that we have today, that you can simply exercise freedom for whatever you want, may not be, um, I mean, it may not be truthful. We argue that Paul's writings express universal truths. And I think we're arguing, as, as you're hearing, that in fact, uh, there is a truth when we dig deeper to exercising freedom for love of others. And that this writing from Paul to the Galatians so many years ago is expressing that very truth. But he doesn't stop there. There is a still a final, a final passage to this, this excerpt from Paul's letter that we're discussing. And he says, But if you go on biting and devouring one another, be aware that you are not consumed by one another. So what happens if we exercise our freedom for ill or for ourselves instead of for the good of others? What would happen? Would not, and, and if everybody does that, then what is the situation that we are left with? We're going to be left with what we are starting to see in the America today, that is more the people just biting and devouring one another. This, these feelings of conflict, of animosity, of hostility will become consuming. You have someone who strikes a congressional candidate, knocks him to the floor, and then jumps on him because he's not done yet, even though the man is unconscious. Is that not an all-consuming type of hostility? And if it consumes that person, what about the next person? You know, one act of hostility then begets another, does it not? Can we forget some act of hostility and just let it go and do nothing about it? Or do we want some type of retribution often enough? Is that not the normal human reaction, that somebody ought to get paid back for what they did? And so how hard is it to let something go? But if we follow Paul, Paul's description, and we would have love, then we would not need such retribution. We would not be consumed. We would not let either feelings of hostility or feelings for retribution consume us to the point where, um, you know, we cannot let this go. So uh, this is what... This is what Paul is telling us uh, in this letter written almost 2,000 years ago to these people, the Galatians, and yet it could be written to us today. It could be written to Americans. Why not? Um, you know, is it, is it wrong to think that Paul could even have been writing with Americans in mind? Let's explore that a little bit. Um, it has been said that we can do nothing on our own. We can do nothing without God. And, um, of course, God 
is able to see through the ages. When God reached down, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and struck him to the ground and changed his life forever, he could have envisioned that Paul needed to write letters. I'm sure he did envision that when Paul wrote his letters to these communities around the Mediterranean, that these letters would be seen and heard and read years and generations and centuries later. This was not beyond his purview. And if these messages are timeless, if they express truths that do not change over time, then of course it could easily be said that these messages are meant for us here in America. They're meant for us just And in fact, we do, we do homage to the Lord. We give glory to the Lord when we acknowledge that and when we respect that. If we didn't, if we didn't believe that, um, that the Lord could have envisioned that or could have had that purpose, then, in fact, we are putting limits on the Lord. And we are not, in fact, giving him the glory that he is due. So it is, it is apparent that this message that we're talking about, to exercise freedom for, um, for love and for others, and not to use it in a way that devours one another, is a message that we would be well to heed today. And it's probably the only message that we could uh, heed today, which will keep us from the path on which we are going. There are two choices. There's a choice of a world based on conflict, in which case, if we are biting and devouring another, the only answer that we've got is to get into that game and try to bite and devour the other person, um, as opposed to one which says, pull back, stop, have love for one another. These are two diametrically opposed views. Um, there is really not a middle ground. We've been listening to one. We're increasingly listening to one. We see it even in families today, where political conversations are turning people inside, giving families against one another. It's, if strangers can't abide each other's company, it's one thing if on college campuses, people demand safe space, spaces so they can be safe from other people. It's, it's one thing if on, on campuses people demand that certain speakers not be allowed to express their views because they can't stand to listen to them. And it's another if we demand the same thing inside a family where somebody that we've lived with growing up, somebody we've known for years and years, somebody that there's a natural bond and connection with, somebody with whom there is uh, some relationship of love at some time, and we take that person and shut them off or have now feelings of ill will and animosity towards them. If it can happen there, and it is happening there in families, uh, there are stories all the time now about, you know, well, what, what, what can you say at a Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving dinner table when politics comes up? And what do you do? How do you respond when somebody, you know, gets, gets angry with you in such a context? It's happening more and more. 
how do we deal with this? It is said, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, that well, God is love, and if the message from Paul is that that's how we have to exercise our freedom, and if we have not been, it's become it's because God is becoming less and less of who we are. There are efforts to uh, take uh, God out of our public sphere. There are efforts that. If you want to be religious, you can be religious inside a church, but don't bring it out into public. The message from Paul is is one of love. It's one of God. It is one that is connected uh, connected to the core of everything Paul writes about. We have uh, we have mentioned earlier that there is a beauty in the scripture. There is a beauty to be found in things connecting with one another. There is confidence to be found in things connecting with one another because if different ideas taken together and looked at from different angles point to the same thing, then there's a there's an inner unity to them that you would not find, uh, logically speaking, with things that are not true. Even this concept of truth is something that is under attack uh, in large measure today. Mr. Alinsky thought that truth was a matter of opinion, that truth can be made to say one thing at one point and one thing at another, depending on who's doing the speaking, and that therefore you can mold it how you like it. Um, And when that happens, then telling a lie about somebody else isn't really telling a lie. This is um, this is uh, the result of, of of opinions and viewpoints that don't necessarily tie into a cohesive whole the same way that the scriptures do. For example, and there are many instances that can be found of um, the writings, and I'm just taking Mr. Olinsky because we've talked about him already. But there are many instances of things that he says that are inconsistent with things that he says at another time. But we're not going to go into that in great detail here. But to go back to Paul's writings, what does he say that is consistent with what he says elsewhere? Well, we can look to the central focus. Everything that he talks about can be tied to this one central focus. And what is that? Paul says that he speaks of Christ and him crucified. That that alone is what um, he's engaged with. Um, He writes that we experience a death like Christ in order that we may live with Christ. That the resurrection that Christ experienced as the opening of a door to us as a path that we can all follow is one that is based on this birth in him that we need to be born again. We need to be, we need to put on a new self. Um, we talked earlier um, about um, freedom being this uh, opportunity to be born again. We're talking about the same thing. It's a freedom to follow Christ. It's a freedom 
to be born anew because we have suffered a death like Christ. A death like Christ. What could he possibly mean? Well, he tells us it is a death to sin. If we follow Christ, we uh, put aside sinful ways, the sinful practices, the sinful ways of thinking we used to, and then we put on a new way of thinking. And that's what his letter to America is talking all about. That uh, it's almost as if he envisioned what was what, what could be happening to us if you do not um, live and exercise your freedom in love and for the benefit of others. That um, you would end up devouring one another, as as we're seeing. So it's it's a freedom, and it's a birth to sin and to living for other people that simply speaks across the centuries, across the ages. It um, it is in fact the one prescription that we can have that will save us. Is there another? Is there another? Um, you can see, for example, um, in the generations, centuries-old strife in the Middle East, that when people harbor feelings of uh, being wronged, that somebody has done something wrong to me, there's been a death in my family. Somebody has killed some member of my family. Maybe it was my father. Maybe it was my grandfather. Maybe it was, you know, my neighbor's father, whatever it was. And then, well, there has to be some payback for that. And we see in the Middle East, that can go on for generations and for centuries. And if America now is tearing itself apart, what path are we creating for ourselves? Where will we be years later? It used to be said that I disagree with your viewpoint. I disagree with what you say, but I agree with your right to say it. That's not what's happening in America anymore. Um, people don't want to hear opposing viewpoints. But this is what, this is in fact what is needed. Is there any other choice? Is there any other choice? There are two choices. There is the choice to go ahead and um, and simply keep on this path, uh, or there is a choice to change from it. And if we change from it, there is one answer, and that is the one that Paul's telling us in his letter is this message of love. St. Thomas More was faced with something similar uh, centuries ago, back in the uh, in the 16th century, and uh, he was. Um, at the highest levels of the British government, um, just one step below the king himself. And the question of, of course, King Henry VIII's divorce came up. And of course, then Thomas More would not yield. But beyond that, before that, there was a bigger, uh, a bigger challenge that he was faced with. And that was the challenge posed by Martin Luther. There was at that time across Europe, a universal church. There was um, a Christendom, and there was a um, a belief in Christendom that this was uh, a world belonging to Christ. And Luther uh, created a threat to that. And what he 
what he said, the tactics that he employed, were similar in, uh, in some ways to what we are seeing today. Um, he tried to gin up uh, feelings of anger against uh, the Catholic Church. Now, there were probably, undoubtedly, there were people, officials, prelates in the church at that time who were uh, committing acts that deserved condemnation, that deserved some type of um, uh, some type of penalty, some type of ouster. Depending on who it was and what they did, I'm sure there were things that that deserved uh, you, know, you know some type of of, of answer. And that's uh, you know. And, and so when Luther spoke out against some things, he was speaking out about those, and he would not have had any kind of falling with anybody else unless they felt the same way about some of these things, unless they experienced some of the same um, slights and offenses coming from people within the church. And he used, uh, on many occasions, language that was harsh, language that could fairly be said to be vile against people in the church. He tried and used, he tried to and used anger to get people to react against the Catholic Church. Was that an occasion where he was using um, a motivation, a technique that was born out of what he thought it was directed towards, what he thought was a good purpose? Perhaps. Um, but is it not also similar to what we're seeing today with people who ascribe to these ideas that if you are trying to help um, an oppressed sector of our society today that you can employ anger, hostility, ridicule against other people. Are we not seeing the same thing play out? And if we are, can we look to Thomas More and see what his answer was? Well, Thomas More uh, wrote, he wrote uh, books and pamphlets in response to the things and the ideas that Luther was promoting. And he used reason. He was uh, an intellectual person who uh, a lot of people realized at the time was very effective in his arguments and the way that he argued, but he argued points. He thought that the way to um, answer uh, the problems being caused uh, by these attacks on, on people was to answer it with reason and to, use, and to engage people in intellectual argument. And nevertheless, he was not entirely successful. So the question then becomes, um, is there another technique that can be used, uh, one that might be more effective than the one exercised based by St. Thomas More? He was, of course, not very effective since, I mean, just simply say he was not effective from the fact that he was not able to convince the king uh, of, his, um, of his viewpoints and ended up uh, being beheaded on account of it. So is there another uh, technique that could possibly be used in response? And that is why on this show, we are talking about St. Paul's letters to America. Instead of St. Thomas More, perhaps we look to St. Paul. And what is St. Paul telling us? Again, St. Paul is telling us that we were born for freedom and that you use the freedom for 
love. Love is the answer. An emotional, an appeal to emotions of anger and hate can sometimes not be answered with reason. Sometimes the only proper response is to respond with a competing emotion. And that competing emotion would be love. In fact, is there any emotion that is more powerful? If God is love, and if God is all-powerful, then there can be no more powerful emotion than love. If we look to Paul, what we find Paul saying is, um, exercise your freedom for love. Consider your neighbor as, as more important than yourself. If, in fact, America was as a whole, simply if instead of having a uh, presidential press conference where all the major networks tuned into what the president was saying, supposing we had just um, any normal person who goes to church on a, on a Sunday and have him stand before a camera and simply read this letter from Paul, if the entire country could at one time all together listen to a letter that says love, love your neighbor more than yourself. And if people listen to it, what would then happen? Would not the very impetus for using hostility to help the oppressed evaporate? If we all had a a society based on regarding our, our neighbors as, as, as well as ourselves or better, um, then we wouldn't need the conflict. And in fact, and if we have the conflict, if we instead say, no, we, we must have the conflict, are we not going to create a situation where there simply is more strife, more trouble, um, you know, more anger, and that simply will beget more and more? The answers provided by Paul are timeless. There's nothing new about the human condition that hasn't been new, that hasn't been the case before. A prescription to love is one that um, can always work. It is the one that can work. We are sitting now in a situation here in America. We are more divided than ever. What can we do about it? If anybody actually tried to go out and say, well, Republicans need to love Democrats and you know, liberals need to love conservatives and so on and so forth, what would the reaction be? Would they be laughed at? Um, I dare say a lot of people uh, might have that reaction taken at its simple, uh, bare um, sounding, um, just love one another. It almost seems too simple. Um, it's not complicated enough for us. We're intelligent people, and um, you know we're we're in an elevated stage of of our social development right now. That's just too simple. But what does complexity lead us to instead? Um, it leads us to having these stratagems for winning political aims that somehow debase themselves to attacking other people. 
if something else worked, would that not other technique have been employed? Yes, of course. So the reason why the techniques of attacking other people are employed is because they do work. So there is something that needs to change in us. The message from Paul to love one another, that's what has to be heard. Um, it is often commented and said that attendance in churches is going down. Belief in God is going down. Um, and so, therefore, these simple uh, prescriptions that are espoused of loving one another, because that's what God wants us to do, seems too simple for us nowadays, and that we need something more complex. But the point is that uh, the human condition is the same as it has been. The, um, the needs that we have are the same that the Galatians and the Colossians and the Philippians had. They're the same as the people to whom Paul was writing. Paul was not expressing things that he came up with on his own. It has been said that all scripture, the Catholic Church holds, it's in the catechism, that all scripture, the entire Bible is inspired. It's inspired. Inspired, inspired by whom? Inspired to say what? It's inspired by God. The writings of Paul could not have been written unless he was being inspired, unless he had some vision that was consistent with God's vision of people and the world and who we are and our purpose. And his writings were that we needed to love one another. Uh, this is what America needs to hear. If Paul could send out a letter from heaven, or maybe an email, or, he was, or maybe a text message. But if he was to send a communication down from heaven, would he not write the very same thing he wrote to the Galatians? We don't need him to send a letter from heaven. We have the letter to the Galatians. It's not to the Galatians. It's to all people everywhere in all times. And it is to America today. It is the fact that you were called for freedom. It is this calling that sets you free. It's to be free from sin, the sin of attacking other people, the sin of uh, committing unkindnesses and, uh, to other people. Uh, it's, the, it's the freedom to treat others as yourself. That is the message that America needs to hear. That is a message that Paul's letter to the Galatians over the centuries uh, can still uh, speak to us with today. It is a blessing that his letters were preserved. There's a reason why they were preserved. People obviously at the time felt they were important. We're lucky enough to have them. We should, uh, we should have the, 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 you know, the insight to, to listen to them. And um, we are going to um, continue on this program to examine some of his other insights and some of the other things that he should be telling us. We, we took this one today because it seems like it is perhaps the most, most pressing message, uh, the most pressing need that we have for our country here today. And to you that are listening, 
The question for you is, can you listen to Paul's letter? If so, what ways can you find to act it out? And if you start something, even even in one instance, perhaps it'll beget something else um, of a similar nature, and perhaps we can change the tide of uh, hostility towards one another. It's what we need to do. There is no other way to do it. So I present to you, I'm, I'm glad, I'm thankful that you listened to this program today about this particular letter. Please join us again the next time when we'll take another letter from St. Paul and look at it as Americans, as a letter from St. Paul to America. Thank you. God bless. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.